welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jarrett Fuller, and this is a podcast about art and design criticism. Let me try to set up this kind of strange episode for you. I am joined today by Jarrett Ernest. Jarrett is an artist and writer who, in 2008, published a, a really incredible book that I love called What It Means to Write About Art, Interviews with Art Critics, where he talks to many of the best art writers of the last few decades about how they approach their craft. Uh, this is a book that probably immediately seems very interesting to, to many of you who like this show. And this was interesting to me for many reasons, beginning with just finding another Jarrett whose name is spelled the same way as mine. But where I am a designer and a writer, this Jarrett was an artist and a writer. And where I started this podcast to interview design critics about design criticism, Jarrett made a book to interview art critics about art criticism. I was intrigued not only with his project and how it came together, but also all the weird similarities between our work. And so in this episode, in many ways, uh, it's kind of a meta episode. We talk about how and why we both interview people, how we both started writing, and what we learned from our respective projects. But this isn't just an episode about ourselves. This also turned into what I think became a really fascinating conversation about the nature of art, about how it moves in the world, and how we write and talk about it. We talk through the differences between art writing and design writing and what we want from each of those. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Jared is an incredibly smart person who's really thinking about art in a deep way that I, I just really love and admire. His writing has appeared in publications like the Brooklyn Rail, the Village Voice, Vulture, and the Los Angeles Review of Books, and he's lectured and critiqued at schools around the country. I hope you get as much out of this conversation as I did. Don't forget, Scratching the Surface is made possible because of listeners like you. Through 2021, we'll be releasing new episodes every single week. So if you enjoy this show and want to help support it, you can become a member for just $5 a month or $50 a year. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter written by me as well as previews of the upcoming episodes. This show, in many ways, and being able to release episodes every week this year is made possible because of your support. And so I can't thank you enough. For all the details to sign up, you can visit scratchingthesurface.fm slash members. Thank you again for listening and enjoy this conversation with Jarrett Ernest. Just for listeners, I just want to very quickly talk about the weird parallels in in uh, the two of us. And so you are an artist and a writer who uh, essentially edited this book, put together this book called What It Means to Write About Art, where you interviewed people who write about art, art critics, about kind of how they do their job, about how they got into their job, about how they kind of think about criticism. I am a designer and a writer who interviews design critics about how they do their job, how they got into criticism, how they how they kind of think about writing. Um, your name is Jarrett, spelled J-A-R-R-E-T-T. -T. My name is Jarrett, spelled J-A-R-R-E-T-T. -T. You know, there's just this, these like weird uh, kind of connections between both of, of the work that we do. And so I'm interested in how you started uh, the book. Where did this idea for the, to kind of interview critics come from? Or what were you kind of interested in doing when you began that? Well, to start, I, I also want to acknowledge that people are experiencing the convergence of like alternate reality selves. 
Um, I'm the art Jarrett, you're the design Jarrett. And similarly, um, while I, you know, I have a lot of thoughts about criticism in general, and theoretically, I like the idea of design criticism, I have no real sense, and in fact, I'd like to write some, but, (laughs) but I have no real sense of what that means in reality, like in practice. And so I'm hoping to learn from this conversation, not only about your process, but about the kind of stakes of the design discourse now and how that might intersect, overlap, or, or diverge from mm-hmm. some of the things that I sketched out in the book. Yeah. Uh, so my, how did I start doing it? I guess there's a lot of ways to answer that. The most um, straightforward way is I, I was always an artist and I went to art school. And when I got to art school, um, I was a painter and I looked at the people who were painting and I, the people who were teaching painting. And I just thought like, these are not my people, you know, mm. like, these people are, are dumb. Like they don't do books. <laughs> like the, yeah. the, the way that it was being taught and discussed was not interesting to me. I was, mm. I was interested in, you know, ideas and whatever. And I still love painting. Painting still probably my primary relationship to art. But um, so I stopped painting. I didn't take any painting classes in art school. I only, and I started taking everything else. And through that, I had a teacher who was a poet and named Bill Berkson, who I included in the book. And he was like, you know, you've got all of these opinions. Why don't you try and write them down? And, and I was like, I don't, well, I can't do that because I'm not a writer. I don't know how to write. Right. And he was like, well, you know, you can just do it. And so he started helping me or he, he would, I would write something and send it to him and it would be terrible. And he would help me give me advice. And then I thought, okay, I graduated from art school. I want to learn how to write. So I, I did something that was very, very naive, which was I applied to PhDs in art history because mm-hmm. I thought that you know, I, I read a lot of books and I love it. And I love talking to people about art and ideas. And so, you know, isn't a PhD in art history where those things happen. And I got there and very quickly realized that is not where they happen. Mm. And, um, and I wanted to learn how to write and I wanted to think about writing about art as a really complicated thing. And so I was in grad uh, in a PhD program in New York for a few years, which was um, utter misery the worst experience of my life, not because it was hard, but because it was so stupid. Okay. And what do you mean by that? What do you mean it was stupid? I felt like the people that I was talking to didn't have any serious investment in art at all. Oh, I see. Got or, it. Or, uh, and, and that's where my desire to write came from. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I'm not learning how to write. That's the reason I came here. There's no one who's asking interesting questions. The dumbest, you know, when the dumbest conversations you have in your life about art is in a PhD program, that's a wake up call. (laughs) So I dropped out and my friends and I, a couple friends and I started a gallery in the Lower East Side uh, that was called One to One. It was on Essex Street. And writing was so physiologically painful for me that I had to invent a system to force myself to do it. And the system, and so I just made a rule that I had to publish something every month. Okay. 
and I, and I was a really good talker. I had, I, I was confident about my ideas and I was confident about thinking and talking, but writing is not thinking or talking. Mm -hmm. And so I started doing these interviews to try and bridge the gap, mostly with mm -hmm. artists. And then it was a few years of doing interviews with artists um, before I just by chance ended up interviewing a writer, which was Bill, uh, uh, which was Dave Hickey, because mm -hmm. we were both in residence together uh, at the Rauschenberg Foundation. And I thought he was really brilliant. And I had always been told this was a bad guy. And, mm -hmm. um, and so that's how it started. After interviewing Dave, I, I then started interviewing more writers about what they do. And, and it was really, I guess in a way it was like what I was looking for when I, when I went to grad school, which was just like really serious, you know, every person, yeah. yeah, you would do a ton of research and then you would have like a complicated conversation with them about, about their work. I, I mean, look, I promise this whole conversation won't be like, oh, wow, look how similar <laughs> we are. But I mean, even your experience, sounds so similar to my own in that when I was in design school and, and, and even more so working as a designer felt like the conversations around the work we were doing were not interesting to me. Um, you know, I, like you was someone who, who is interested in ideas and interested in reading and, and in design, especially I was interested in how it actually lives in the world. And so when conversations around design devolve into whether one typeface is better than another typeface or whether, you know, this shade of blue is the right blue versus this shade of blue, I just like, I tune out, I can't do it. Um, and, and I then also was interested in writing and people said, oh, you should write. And I said, oh, I, I don't know. I'm not a writer. And in, I, I have joked before that I am a podcaster in a way because I'm a failed writer because I like, you know, don't want to put in the work to 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 write as much. And that's where interviews came, came in for me also. Can you talk more about this idea that you were interested in ideas and you like to read? Um, I, I'm struck by that writing wasn't something that you were interested in before you had this teacher in school, if you were, you know, kind of interested in all of this stuff already, where did that, how did that kind of intersection between kind of writing and reading come into your art practice? Well, reading was always a huge thing. I was always a, a ravenous reader from the time that I was really small and that felt very, that's always been very, very natural. Like it was mm -hmm. a long time for me before I realized that like reading comprehension was like a thing mm. because I would just be like, Oh, you read it and you understand what it means. You know, it's like, right, you know, it right. almost wasn't even until I started teaching where I was like, Oh, like we've, we've got to talk about what yeah. it just actually means before we interpret it. Um, yeah. So I was very into reading and I read a lot and um, it was like, but somehow that was never writing. You know, I think that right, right. is a level of abstraction that is different than other ways of communicating. You know, talking is is provisional in the way that thinking is. It, it disappears at the moment that it appears. And um, you can change your mind in the middle of a thought and... Um, and it's okay, you know, but with writing, you're really talking about something that's a form and that it has a certain kind of stability. And even with the, you know, great writing, which has the um, experience, the illusion of this kind of fluidity of thought or speech, 
that's the product of, of really um, precise technical skill. Right. And um, in a way, it's just like training. I didn't have the training. I, I, I never really was in a writing class. So I, I, I think that those, those things are really different. I, I agree. And a, a phrase that stuck out to me when I was reading the book was um, when you were talking to Thryza Nichols Goodeve, and she referred to interviews as collaborative conversations. And, and I found that to be a kind of interesting term to think about interviews as a type of writing or interviews, you know, or conversation, even as a, a type of kind of, um, I don't know, elaborated speech or elaborated talking in some way. And I'm interested in how you thought about, I guess this is a two-part question, kind of what you think about that term collaborative conversations in your own practice and in, in kind of putting together the book. But I'm also interested in your process of structuring and editing these interviews. Um, the book was much more casual than I was expecting. A lot of times when I read transcriptions of interviews, they become very kind of rote and, uh, you know, here's a question, here's an answer. You put yourself into it sometimes more so than others. Some conversations start the same way and then go somewhere where I wasn't expecting. How did you, uh, how did you kind of think about the, the editing of the book and kind of the process of uh, having these conversations with these writers? To start with what you were saying about Thurza, whom I really adore, I'm glad that you pulled that out of her interview, uh, describing interviews as collaborative conversations because she herself is a writer who um, has done so many interviews that are really unique with artists and writers. And they're unique because I think not only is she so smart, but here's the thing, a lot of people are smart. Smart's not that big a deal. Actually, right. it's, it's kind of like talented, you know, it's like a lot of people are talented, <laughs> a lot yeah. more people are not talented, but it's a pretty big pool. And so what's special to me about what Thursday does is not only is she smart, but she's very human mm. and she knows how to connect the, the idea to a, like a kind of personal, to a kind of personal experience. And so I, I really admire her and I, I feel like I learned a lot from her in that sense. Um, oh, but okay. So the thing about collaborative is I think everything is collaborative. And so one of the things that has become increasingly interesting to me as a writer is to move away from the framing, the isolation of like a single person or a single event as, um, as the, the bearer of meaning um, but rather to orchestrate them in such a way that you understand that they're in a very complex dynamic, which is collaborative. Like it's a collaboration with reality. It's a collaboration with their community. And in a, in a, in a larger sense, I think that that's what I, I tried to set up with the book as a form is that you have all of these one-on-one -on -one conversations. So already you have this little dyad. But each of those dyads are put in in context of 29 others that right. create a world. And, and sometimes right. those world, you know, sometimes the, the people are talking about each other in the interviews and sometimes they're in a completely separate reality. But I felt like bringing them together was was a way of trying to say, like, none of these people are in this alone. Mm -hmm. And so. I think that that's one of the reasons why I love interview as a forum. It's precisely what you're saying about the collaborative thing. Like things come up in these interviews because I'm me and they're them and we're doing it on a particular day. 
if you did it on another day, if you did it right. with someone else, it's going to be a completely different conversation. Right. And, I, and so when you talk about how much I've put myself into the interviews, I think that that was not only a way of being kind of honest, that like both the person I'm talking to and the reader can have a sense of like, who is this person that's asking these questions? But also it, it could allow the, the conversation to go into a new direction by, by being very transparent about like what I'm bringing to the table. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I love that. And I, I think about it the same way. And when I first started interviewing and when I started this podcast, I, I had never interviewed anybody before. And so I brought a microphone to my first interview and was like, I, we're just going to talk because I don't know how to do this. And and that became the format for, for these because I didn't know how to, oh, no, I don't, I still don't know how, nor do I think it's actually better to have this interview where I am some neutral bystander because that's not true. And I think, you know, the way you've described it as more honest is exactly right. Something that I think is interesting in your book that you started to allude to is the wide range of people. You have people who are, you know, kind of more academic thinking art historians. You have critics for newspapers and magazines. You have um, uh, people who come from kind of fiction or, or poetry backgrounds. But my impression was these were all people who you really admired. You got a lot out of their writing. Uh, even if you maybe disagreed with with their views, there was something about them that, you know, you had this kind of way in this, this certain respect for. Can you talk about kind of how you picked the people that you picked to include and, and the importance of having these people that might not otherwise be in dialogue, uh, how you kind of decided that they should be, you know, under this one umbrella? Yeah. Well, I think one part of that is, is sheer perversity, mm-hmm. which is some of those people... Um, would never ever be brought up in conversation as, as being involved in the same thing. And I like, I think that that is really preposterous. (laughs) Um, Also, I think what you're saying is right. I mean, if, if you ever want to do a project that will just make a bunch of people mad at you, (laughs) do a book like this, you select a finite group of people because um, every person that is not in the book is like um, is like slighted, and I right. and I you know I wish I could report that um, you know art critics as a group of people were slightly more thin uh, thin than that, but they're not. <laughs> and uh, yeah. whatever, yeah. yeah. But I'm fine with people being mad at me. I think that's also a prerequisite for being like a, a, a real writer is, or artist. It's like okay, people are going to be mad at you. That's kind of a good sign. So. Um, but aside from that, it, it was, you know, it was, it was a balance because I felt like there were writers who were historically extremely important and I wanted to capture a picture of who they were while I could. And, and a number of people that I interviewed have also died since then, um, mm-hmm. since the book has come out. And so in a sense, that becomes more poignant. Um, the other part of it were people that I was interested in for whatever reason. And, and that doesn't even mean that I like their writing. It just means that right. I was interested in something that they did, a move that they had made. Um, and I felt that they represented something. Um, of course, I mean, this book was 30 people, which like doesn't sound like that much until you're, until you're like doing it. And then you're like, oh my yeah. God, like, you know, t- doing these interviews, transcribing them, doing the preparation for them. I mean, it turned into a huge book. 
But yeah. of course, there are 30 more people that I could have could easily rattle off and be like, oh, I would love to talk to this person. And, you know, there are people that I regret that aren't in it. And but, you know, I, it, it's like a weird confluence between like you, one's individual um, interests and then trying to meet that against the larger um, the larger picture that you're trying to unfold. Yeah. And one one parameter that you did set, or it seemed that you set, unless I missed something, is that you did not talk to writers who also were continuing to be practicing artists, uh, who had some sort of, you know, were also known for some sort of art practice. You talked to many people who maybe started in art and then moved in, into writing. Um, was that a was that a conscious decision, or what was your kind of thinking around not including, you know, well known artists who happen to also, you know, be, you know, very great writers? Well, I think that in in a sense, the rules had to get very arbitrary. And <laughs> yeah. so, um, and, and it's funny, I'm kind of working on a, a little project that'll come out later in the year that is conversations with some, some writer, some artists who write, but mm. it felt like if your primary status in the world was as an artist, that was a different thing, you know? And, uh, you know, it's like Amy Silman, who is a great painter, just brought out a book of her criticism, and it's really fabulous. And, um, you know, a number of people who write about art who are artists, it's some of my favorite writing, because there is a kind of freedom, in many cases, first of all, there, there's an embeddedness, like they care about what they're writing, they wouldn't write about it if they didn't care. Right. And then, um, and then there's a kind of freedom because they're not a writer. They, you know, this isn't this mm-hmm. isn't to get paid mm-hmm. to. And so I think that with um, with putting trying to put together the parameters of this book, which was just kind of anything that could help make make it have a shape, I said, you know, I can't really put in, you know, poets, novelists. Those are people who use language as a medium and mm. think about it. Um, in, in deeper ways necessarily. Um, an artist thinks about words um, in an interesting way, but not necessarily the same way that a writer would. And so that, that's the only reason. I think it's kind of a lame reason, but uh, I felt like I could have, you know, I could do a book of 30 interviews with, with artists who write and it would be fabulous, but it would be yeah. a very different book. Yeah. Well, I mean, I asked the question because I'm kind of curious about your position in that. Uh, you know, you mentioned that you you studied painting and, and that you still, you know, are very interested in painting. Do you see yourself primarily as a writer or primarily as an art? Like, where do you fall on that divide? And then also, where do you see this book kind of on that divide? Like, do you see this book as, as a artistic practice, ge- like a, a gesture of artistic practice? Or is this a book of of criticism and of writing? Well, when I, you know, I don't necessarily think it's important what we think about ourselves um, Mm. as much as, you know, what the culture needs from you and how you function within it, Um, I think is probably more quote unquote important. But if you're asking how I think about it, when I think about my essential self, I think of my, what I do as an artist. And um, however... Um, increasingly, I mean, I think of, of an artist in a very large sense. So I think of writers as artists and I think of film yeah. as an artist. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah. like when I say someone is like an artist, I could say that about 
someone who does something in almost any form. But, um, you know, lately I have been, I feel like I've really connected to writing and language in a different way. And so I, I do also feel like a writer. Like I don't feel like, um, a fake. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, I've never, I've never had the, um, imposter syndrome thing that like, you know, whatever, like generation Z talks about. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Like, in, in this book, like, I think of this book as much as an artist project, as a writing project, but the truth is it's both. Right. I think that that's kind of the thing, it goes back to what you're saying about the, the collaborative conversation is, is that I think I'm really um, trying on a lot of levels to get away from these kind of dualities. Yeah. And um, which is funny given like how I just like talked about laying out the rules of like not artists right, but <laughs> well, I mean that's why I asked the question because that was kind. Of, I felt that in the book, and I felt like that this was a book about writing. I also felt this was a book about art. I kind of, in reading interviews that you did about the book, kind of felt like you were kind of straddling both of those lines. That this was this was an artist book, and this was also a, a book of writing. But then in the interviews themselves, so many people that you talked to enjoyed putting up uh, boundaries around what they do. You know, this is, I am a historian, I'm not a critic, or I'm a critic, I'm not a historian, or what this person does, that's not art criticism. And I, I couldn't always tell where you fell on that. And the fact that you, you know, kind of going back to what we talked about earlier, the fact that you had this wide range of people my assumption was you kind of weren't interested in those boundaries. You, you, you're kind of just interested in writing and talking about art and whether that is, whether you call yourself a historian or a theorist or a critic, it almost doesn't matter. Is that, is that kind of how you think about it? Well, I do think that it matters. However, I think that to enlarge the, to enlarge this conversation to the present moment and especially the present moment within the culture at large, but also um, the discourse of art and art history is that we are at a moment where these categorizations are um, no longer operative. Right. They're not clarifying. And in fact, the distortions, particularly in a race, racist sense, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. are so transparent that we really have to rethink from the ground up. I do not think that there are a lot of tools that come to us from art history that are going to be useful for this work. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, probably art criticism as a category, as we knew it, I mean, as it, when I said art criticism to someone in this book, like Michael Fried, it meant a specific thing. Whatever he meant is not what it means now. And in fact, there might not even be art criticism in the future. It might, there might not even be art criticism now, frankly. And so I think that the, that is on one hand, uh, kind of scary, I guess, if you're invested in institutional power, which I am not. Uh, on the other hand, it is really an exciting opportunity to think about something that's really complex and difficult. And the the best way to begin that work is to try and dissolve the inherited thought patterns and distinctions, and then really look at them next to each other and say, look, you know, put everything on the table. 
I have no fear that the art that I love and believe in is going to, is, is going to persist. Maybe we'll lose a lot of stuff too, but you know, what we're doing is we're going to put demands on these things based on the needs of the moment and of the future. And so when we're doing that, like fighting yeah. over, like I'm a critic or I'm a historian, it's pretty stupid to me. Yeah. And, uh, and I guess that that's part of a, that's part of the attitude that, that I think you're responding to, which was basically undercover in the book. Yeah. 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 And, 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 and I agree with that. And in the introduction to the book, you, you describe criticism as um, almost like an, a fiction. You say it's an embodiment of a worldview. And I'm curious, maybe this is where we can start to kind of bring in design uh, into the conversation a little bit more. Also, can you talk about what you mean when you, when you talk about art criticism as a fiction um, and, and maybe even relate that to this idea of like, you know, the, the, the role I, I, that sounds so serious, you know, kind of what you're saying about how writing about art kind of fits into this current moment. Well, I think if you start trying to get to a, a really basic definition of what an artwork is, I, I think you can't really get beyond it being something that like a human made for other people to look at and think mm. about through looking at it or engaging with it in some way. And because otherwise, you know, it could be any, any object in the world and every object, you know, can be an aesthetic contemplation can be brought to bear on anything. So yeah. what makes an artwork different than a salt shaker? Well, what right. makes the painting different from a chair? And I guess this is getting to the crux of the distinctions between design criticism and art criticism. Um, although I don't, I don't think so in a deeper sense, but in other ways, the way I'm phrasing it points into a, a rift there. But um, so what happens when you pay attention to an artwork in the, in this, the elevated way that we pay attention to artworks is that you, you, um, you experience it, you notice things about it, you fit it into a story that you have about your experience of it. And um, that to me, and then if you're a critic, you write that story down. And that to me is, is as much a short story of like a personal short story as it is, um, you know, an objective accounting of a painting. And, and the one way that you know that is that you can read writing about things over time and just see the difference of attitude and insight yeah. and implication that emanate from the thing. I think, you know, I was just reading a book on, on primitive mythology that was written in the 50s that uh, was about the cave, interpretations of the cave paintings hmm. and the story that is manifesting it's extremely erudite, is extremely, um, you know, grounded in the anthropology and sociology of its moment. And it is so of its moment, like what it, you know, the existential drama that unfolds in the cave painting. And, and I think that that's one of the things that's incredible about cultural objects is that they avail themselves to, um, to, um, solicit to hold those kinds of experiences over time and then we can we can kind of check them between each other and that's mm -hmm. actually like what makes a culture right I, yeah i mean it, this is interesting and and i i 
I want to lean into this part of the conversation about kind of, um, you know, kind of perhaps dissolving these boundaries or thinking about these things as, as separate in some way. Um, I actually just just uh, wrote a wrote an essay uh, a couple months ago that was just published, a, basically arguing that there's no such thing as design criticism because in a way, everything is kind of design criticism because we live in a world that has been completely redesigned by humans in some way, and there's no escaping that. And so any type of cultural criticism is in a, we can kind of think of that as, a, as design criticism because it was some sort of designed experience. And that for me has been a way to, uh, I, I have a series of questions here and I'm going to try to break them down. So, so it's not just <laughs> me monologuing for a second. Um, that to me has been a way to think about how we talk about design that moves it away from a purely aesthetic experience. And so as a graphic designer, um, a lot of design writing, and I'm being reductive and I'm being a little bit overly simplistic here, but just, you know, for the sake of argument, um, a lot of design writing talks about, oh, here's a poster. Let's talk about the, the typography on it. Let's talk about the images on it. Let's talk about how big it is. And there's, there's less discussion on how does this function in the world or how does this change its world in some way? How does this create a culture? How does this include or exclude people? How does this kind of, um, you know, change a trajectory of something? That is a more interesting design discussion for me. Um, I think we can kind of apply that to, to even things like apps and, you know, you know, Facebook and social media and all this, how those are design questions in a way we should be thinking about you know, when we talk about design criticism, we shouldn't be talking about like the design of the Facebook logo or the timeline. We should be talking about like how this is, you know, perhaps destroying democracy or something. <laughs> and and I'm interested in, you know, are there, uh, I'm going to show my ignorance in, in the art world. Are there parallels to those types of discussions? You, you talk to a lot of people in the book about kind of uh, formal description and how that can also be a type of analysis. And I'm, I'm interested in this kind of intersection between talking about art from a purely aesthetic or formal basis versus kind of talking about a cultural context or, or, or kind of meaning. Um, and, and maybe I'm just asking you to kind of explain it to me as someone who's a little bit outside of that world. Does, does that make sense? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it does. I would say that the, the trend, I mean, first of all, the book that I wrote is kind of a 20th century book. Mm. And so there aren't young writers really um, and it's more of a portrait of a different moment. I think the writing that's happening now is all, um, about subject matter. Yeah. And it's not about what it looks like at all. And right. so, uh, you know, that's scary to me because, mm -hmm. uh, I really care about what things look like. However, the, the, I think one of the most kind of, and this is going to reveal my, uh, bizarro world, Jarrett ignorance, which is, one of the most like pejorative things that I could say about a show of someone's paintings, for instance, is that it, you know, it's like design. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, it's very often design that doesn't look good. So then, so then like there's, there's uh, a double whammy there, but I guess, so in that, in that pejorative of me saying that a painting looks like design, I guess what I'm in my prejudice, what I'm saying is that it's purely operating at the level of um, form or decor. And it is, there's no reason why it should exist. You know, it doesn't tell me any story, not even, it doesn't communicate to me 
any urgency of its place in the world. So I don't know why anyone would have made it. And uh, so I guess like to me, when I, when I dismiss something as, as being fine, which is not, which is really, you know, obviously a joke is that, um, is that it seems to me like it's not engaging with some kind of larger purpose. However, the way that, that contemporary art and criticism is trying to get to that larger purpose is solely through the discussion of the subject matter of the art. This art is about X. Mm-hmm. And we then evaluate the quality of the X. By the way, the X is always a good thing. The X is always something we really like. But there becomes this pesky problem, which is like, but is it actually a good artwork? Does it does it communicate the X through its embodied form in a way that is more subtle, uh, layered, complex, um, disturbing, um, beautiful than I would imagine given the equation this artwork is about X. And the way that artworks do that is through the way that they're made, what they look like, and how they unfold that information to you in space and time. The, I I I want to I want to come back to that for a second, but I just have to talk about this like bizarro world thing for a second because the same thing happens in in design critique, and you know I teach in in undergraduate and graduate programs, and I've seen critics come in and, and talk to students, and if a work feels too um, too into itself or too it doesn't have that kind of urgency, it doesn't seem like it's actually talking to the world. Um, People will say, "Oh, this this is too this is art. This is too art. This isn't design." And it's the same thing that you're talking about when you look at art, and you're like, "Oh, this is design." And so it's just it shows how there's this like weird disconnect between these two worlds that are actually very very similar. And I I think you know I, I I don't know I don't know how to talk about this in a way that doesn't start to put divisions between them. But it's almost like I want the I want these two sides to come together in some way. I want design to have the urgency that that art can have um but then i also you know i I, you know you know what i mean like how how do we talk about that historically i think that that those two things come together through architecture criticism Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. notably there were no architecture critics in my book (laughs) um you know originally those things were the same thing you know, right. art and architecture, they were the same department right. and architecture and art were cohabitated. Like they were, you know, sculptures only existed in relationship to architecture, like paintings were made for the specific space of a chapel that they inhabited. So I think that you could look at the distinction as being one that follows, um, you know, the, the trajectory of modernism, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Or a, a modernism as we experience it, it, you know, in the 21st century as the, you know, whatever abandoned mm-hmm. dream. Mm-hmm. I want to come back to this idea of, of kind of the, the, the formal or the aesthetic experience and maybe how that kind of connects to what we were just talking about, because that to me is something I'm just asking you kind of selfish questions that I'm, I'm trying to work through in my own work right now. Um, That to me is the hardest part. And even in this conversation, I've, I've said things like, Oh, I don't care about conversations about typography or about color, but, but that's not really totally true because that is, you know, that's what I actually learned. And that's, 
difference that's, between this blue and that blue is actually kind of important. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so like I say that as a way to point to the larger conversations that I that I am interested in. But I, I, I make it sound like I'm not interested in those others, even though I actually am. I just don't think the conversation should end with those maybe is a better way to put it. Um, and I'm interested in how you think about how you how you think about kind of writing about aesthetic experiences and using those aesthetic experiences to illuminate some larger story. And so just, just to like maybe give something for you to kind of jump off of, I interviewed a couple years ago, Elliot Earls, who's the director of the design program at Cranbrook. Uh, and he said something that I think about often where he talks about in criticism uh, the argument that the work is making or the, the the idea of the work is making should be embodied in the form in some way. We should be able to read the argument in the work itself. I'm not sure if I totally buy that, but I like the idea of that. And and I get some of that in your book when, when people talk about how description can be a type of analysis or can in itself be a form of critique. Can you talk about that kind of intersectional relationship or how the formal aspects of things, how it's actually made does communicate the its urgency or the story that it's telling about the world yeah um it's it's not i'm interested to to talk about this because i do think it's the thing that is the most missing Mm -hmm. in in both on the level of of writers and painters like i visit a lot of grad schools for painting and so okay you have to imagine as a critic and you have to imagine you're a graduate student in painting that means you've made a pretty serious decision to dedicate your time and thought to painting and i'll look at paintings and it will be as though they've never looked at a painting before and i'm and i'm like who you know what are you looking at and they'll name paintings and i said when did you see those oh i've never seen them in person i've, I've just seen reproductions it's like oh okay um mm-hmm. that's what your paintings look like so right. the thing about the way something looks is that um and that it has to embody and in a way what you're saying about this guy it's very old school but it's also very old school and and it's and it's like also super corny but it's so old school and corny that i actually think it's like really important now because it's like it's (laughs) been kind of like it it's so missing from the way that people discuss art at present and so you know what i really like is in the book there's an interview with michael freed who is like a super i mean he kind of represents in the art history that we've inherited, like bad guy formalism, you know, yeah. he just, you know, he's the Greenberg guy. He wants everything right. to be like a stained canvas and da, 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 da. And there's a beautiful conversation with him in this book about the limits of the, of form and description mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. they're interpenetrated. And he said, you know, we were talking about a Caravaggio painting of Mary Magdalene and the, extraordinary kind of emotional and psychological complex that it represents as a painting. And um, he says, well, if you are going to be a pure form person, where does it stop? Like, where does the information that you need stop? Like, do you have to know that it's Mary Magdalene? Do you have to know the Bible story? Do you have to know that it's a person? Like what beyond it just being um, 
mineral pigment suspended in oil on a dirty cloth, right. you have to be able to recognize it as terms of a cultural proficiency before it is, you know, before you're not doing formal analysis. So I think that my feeling is that we have to have that kind of serious, rigorous engagement with form, but in its expanded context in which all of that cultural and associative mm. information, which is literally present in your experience of an artwork, can be acknowledged and can find its home in the form or attached to the form. So I think that the way that something looks, it's like a condensed version of um, of its concerns that expand incre with increasing like kind of diaphanousness out into the world, all over the world, sets of histories, associations, implications, and that through looking at the thing precisely the way it is and the decisions that that produced it, you can then follow those threads, those trails, out up into the larger world, back into time, back right. into space. And so I think that the kind of attention, I don't know how that attention manifests itself um, in a broyer chair, for instance. Like I have ideas on how you would do it for a, like a broyer chair in particular, but like many chairs, I don't know. Yeah. And uh, however, in the way, if you want to talk about a painting or a sculpture, which is the thing that I know pretty well, is that every single thing that you see was a decision and it has a history and it was done on purpose. Right. Yeah. And, Which is the same for a chair though, really. Yeah, which is true. Um, I guess the difference is probably like my proficiency in uh, the histories of the chair, like all of the decisions in relationship to make the chair, the chair, because the chair has a pretty immediate goal or it has at least it has the goal, which is like you've got to be able to sit in it. It doesn't fall over. Like it's the same with like architecture. Like, you know, the building has to not fall down. It has a baseline uh, uh, goal that it has to cross. With an artwork, the, the beauty of it, the thing that makes it so profound is it doesn't have that basic goal. Like it doesn't, and, and that means that every single aspect, all the way down, me it, it was is subject to a kind of interrogation or intervention at the level of its of its of its own existence in a kind of existential sense, and and that to me is just intoxicating because then you get into questions about being itself. That's so interesting, and that uh, I mean that that's very helpful <laughs> for me. Also, you know, going back to my grad students, I I am not one of those people. I'm not one of the uh, one of those professors that you know is is saying, "Oh, your work is is art in some way." I'm like, if it, if this is, goes into art, like let's go, let's talk about it as that too. But then it's always hard for me to talk about you know and to give feedback and critique because I don't have that side of it. I I, I you know as hard as I try, I'm still a designer, still thinking about. I can talk about this kind of functionally. Um, and so I think that's really interesting. I'm going to just completely change the subject for a second because I want to go back to something that you said earlier when we were talking about you know why you why you didn't include practicing artists and something that really struck me and I must have known this probably subconsciously but reading interview after interview it becomes really obvious how many of the art writers that we all know and look up to and admire are also poets 
or or came from a poetry background and just this the amount of poetry in the book w- was amazing to me and i'm just curious your thoughts on you know maybe why that is or that kind of relationship between poetry and art writing um why so many poets are also just like you know kind of incredible art writers what what do you think about that well i think that there are two ways of answering that question one is i think if someone else had done this book there would not be that presence of poetry mm. um i care about poetry uh, part because the way i was introduced to writing about art was through a poet who wrote about art um and he introduced me into the lineage that he himself came from which had to do with it was centered around art news magazine in the 50s and 60s in new york that um had a tradition of hiring um poets you know john ashbury wrote art criticism there james schuyler frank o'hara um and uh reportedly i mean the the kind of quip in the book is i mean i think john ashbury might say it is that he likes poets because they know how to write and they don't have all this extra baggage you know, they <laughs> right write about what they see and at the moment of abex that was the dominant ideology of how you would engage with an artwork it's like what do you see that's that's 20th century American abstraction. Can you like can you push your ability to see what's there beyond uh, the limit that you might think is even b- b- a limit that you don't even recognize that you have, and then tell the story of that. So that's basically um, a lot of ab- abstract art criti- abstraction mm-hmm. criticism, in, and it's fabulous. You know, it's beautiful. Talk about it, um, uh, speculative fiction. It's um, these descriptions of you know how the blue and the red work against each other on one hand that's physiological because there is a real thing that a particular amount of red next to a particular amount of blue in specific shades calibrated can produce an an optical effect but with abex it wasn't about an optical effect it was about an uh, psychological a spiritual uh, uh, an existential effect uh, i mean like a, a, a philosophical effect and um, so, so I was hipped to this lineage of poets who write about art just be just by happens happenstance. But but I um, I love poetry. Um, I've never and, and I love poets, and I I'm very close to many poets. My partner's a poet, and so I I think that in people that you wouldn't expect to have had a poetry background, I was especially attentive to that. And partly it's because, um, you know, most people who are a a lot, some writers in the book and most artists, they know their artists as little kids. And that means that they experience their entire adolescence um, being self-conscious about it as, as an artist. And I think as a poet, and this comes out in Peter Sheldahl's interview most beautifully, you recognize you have a special relationship to language as a child. And that means you think about language, all kinds of language, what your parents say, things on your report card, stop signs, whatever, with a different kind of attention. And uh, so to me, that is really interesting when you start trying to understand the dynamics of writing and also the motivations of writing is that you know, that deep apprenticeship to the language of the world is something that if you are a writer or a poet, you um, 
you know, that's your, that's your education. How did working on this book change how you think about writing or more specifically writing about art? You know, like how, how did this actually kind of change, whether that's like, like process, whether that's kind of how you look at art, whether that's how you kind of think about your, your, uh, your job as a writer, what, how did you come out of this project differently? You know, especially because it's a few, it's like two years later, I, I'm like in a better position to, to think about the answer to that question. And what I really feel is that it gave me, it almost like, it was very freeing. It was almost like an exorcism where it was like, okay, these are all the available, and this is the the effect that I hope it has on people who read it, which is that like, these are a bunch of people who found solutions for them and in their moment to write and they're all different. And it gave me, I think probably not like I ever needed more confidence, but a little more <laughs> I want and Yeah, that like art criticism, can, writing about art can be anything. And, and what we need right now is something different. I, as a writer, I think one of the things that I've always struggled with as a writer have to do with the traditional forms and limitations of, of criticism, which is, are you writing a review that like a 500 to 800 word review? Are you writing a feature? It's like the, there's something, the framing of that, that was never right for me. And, um, basically i guess after having done this book it made me feel less like okay well like i don't write those kinds of things right just like go work on an essay for like a year and a half and uh it'll be like fifteen thousand words and it'll be like in a book you know yeah i think freeing is is such a great word uh and a great way to describe it and i i honestly feel the same way in this in reading your book i i, I definitely think that comes across and in me doing this podcast i feel like it has opened up for me new ways of thinking about how to write about design how to talk about design what design even is in some ways it's um and i hope that's the same for for listeners too just you know to get really meta here um like you said this is kind of a 20th century book this is all people who are primarily older than you i'm interested in who the the writers are that you're interested in now and and maybe even kind of the the issues that you know, you're interested in, in both reading about and writing about yourself that, you know, is kind of, um, you know, facing the art world, I guess. I, I don't mean to use that word, but you know what I mean? Uh, you know, that, the you know, art writers are thinking about now or that you're thinking about. Uh, well, I think that with, you know, when coronavirus first started to happen, a lot of people in the art and media world started to have like a little mini um, crisis, like a midlife crisis, like whatever <laughs> stage of their life they were in, like yeah. like a crisis of meaning. And I was like, yeah, good. You should have that crisis of meaning because what you do is irrelevant. And like, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Like, kill yourself. No, um, <laughs> I was just I was very hopeful because I thought like the both with coronavirus and then with the the Black Lives Matter protests that um, were re-energized around the murder of George Floyd, I felt like, wow, like finally we can press, we can get rid of so much that is superficial out of this discourse. Mm -hmm. 
and people are going to be like, yeah, what am I doing with my life? Right. And yeah. we could kind of like get out of it a, a, a kind of renewed um, urgency and seriousness and creativity because like no one's going to have jobs. So if you don't have a job, you can decide what you want to do, you know? And, um, and then I, I guess what's happened in this slow normalization process or climatization is that it's just returned to like, you know, every article that I see that's written about art, it's just like so frivolous. It's so, it's so um, ridiculous. So now I think, you know, I, I, I think, ooh, not very excited about what's happening in, in art criticism, but also like, you know, it's. I don't know. I think it's going to have to be something different than it appear. You know, I, I really think there are people who like have jobs and they're doing everything they can do to hold on to their job. And um, I just, and it's not even a good job, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, like, why are you doing this? Like, why are you debasing yourself? So I don't remember what the question was, but oh, it was like, oh, who gives me hope? Yeah. Yeah. Who are the writers that you're really interested in right now? Wow, this is another thing where it's like you're just gonna get in trouble. <laughs> like you uh, said, by, by this point in the, the interview, no one's listening anymore. <laughs> thank God. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I don't. I don't have an answer to that question. L- all right. Let me. How about I ask a question in another way that's maybe a little simpler? Um, uh, and this is a question that I ask everybody: What are you reading right now? What books are you reading right now? <laughs> my god it's gonna it's so ridiculous i love it i I, so i read a lot i i assumed as much reading your book (laughs) yeah so i read a lot and i and i follow the reading in a kind of um organic way so it's like i'll read something and then it'll make me read something else Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. something else and then i get on these kind of tangents that last i don't know for like a month and a half or something so the tangent the 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 tangent that I'm on now has to do with um, tantric art and okay. uh, different subsets of um, kind of ec- ec- ecstatic um, mystical Hinduism and the practices that relate to it in like Kashmir and Tibet. And so I, and like, so I, I read this book by Roberto Colasso called Ka, which was about Hindu myths. And I thought it was um, really fabulous. And so then I, I read the, the book that he wrote after that, just about Vedic hymns called Ardor. And then I read a book from the seventies on tantric art. And then I read a book called the yoga of power and that, which was this kind of Italian whatever fascist who wrote one of the first books on yoga. And then, you know, now I'm reading this Joseph Campbell book about mythology. Mm. All right. I knew the Joseph Campbell book. I was completely unfamiliar with all the rest, but that sounds really interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, I would really recommend the um, Colosso Ka. If you've ever been curious about um, Hindu stories, it's very beautiful. And I think his, um, his limitations as a writer are completely uh, obscured by the subject matter, you know, like, okay. The, the like over intellectualism. It's like, it works for the mythology. Oh, interesting. All right. I'm, I'm making a note of that now. Uh, 
Jared, this was such a fun conversation for me. I enjoyed this so much. I feel like we could we could talk for another hour or so about this stuff. And and of course, it's always nice to to meet another Jared who's interested in similar things. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. This was great. It's my pleasure. Thank you. For- this episode was recorded on September 30th, 2020. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.